electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, tech stocks hitting multi-year lows as the pain continues. And those June lows shift into the rear view. How much farther can things fall? We'll talk about it. Plus, from hardware to sales events, big techs betting big on the consumer. But with Meta down almost 5% and Amazon not far behind, is that a good thing? And then finally, more on the biggest movers of the day as Uber and Lyft slump on these regulation fears. Bernstein presses pause on Roblox. Kathy Wood making a big new buy. We'll get to all of that. First, though, some uh, fresh eco data hitting the tape. Steve Leisman's got it. Hey, Steve. Hey, Carl. Yeah, the New York Fed survey of consumer expectations, which has been recently followed closely for what it says about inflation expectations. And some good news here, the one-year inflation expectations falling sharply to 5.4%. That is down three ticks in the lowest reading since September 2021. On the other hand, the three-year and five-year numbers, which the Fed actually is more interested in, the three-year to 2.9% and the five-year rising to 2.2, up 0.2. So that's going to have to be watched to see if that's a change because the Fed's been following that. Now, expectations for home prices declining 2%. Declining two two percent down one tenth. That's the lowest reading since June of 2020. Inflation expectations rose for gas, food, education, and rent. And maybe the big headline here: spending expectations falling sharply to six percent uh, growth over the next year. That is uh, down 1.8 and the steepest decline we've seen since the survey began, and the lowest reading itself since January 2022. John, all right, not bad. Steve Leisman, thank you. Still another rough day for tech as the Nasdaq falls to its lowest levels since early July of 2020 as investors continue to wonder just how much lower things can go. It's around those levels, but senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us to keep us straight on this. Mike, how do things look and what does it tell us? Yeah, John, and it actually helps to look at a longer term perspective on the Nasdaq to get a bit of the rise in the fall, see how much of that really aggressive move both into and beyond the start of the pandemic is is remaining here. So here's a four year look. Uh, Nasdaq Composite actually uh, has lost a little bit of, uh, of its technical standing here, I would say. The S&P 500 in the last couple of days uh, has been bouncing off of this very long term average, about a uh, 200 week or, or thousand day moving average. Uh, this one is, is kind of breached it. And it would look something like that uh, right around the 11,000 mark is where uh, that would come in. So that's a little bit of a faltering of the trend, although we still do remain about 6% above where we were at the pre pandemic peak. That's a similar margin to where the S&P is above its peak. So it's just sort of the highs have been higher and then the decline has been more aggressive when it comes to the Nasdaq. Now, not all tech is the same. We know this, right? Take a look at the same scale, 40 years uh, of different components 
of tech. And you'll see how semiconductors in particular had so much air under them. That's the white line uh, right there. So, yes, they've been battered. They look like they're, they're getting kind of neglected and cast aside. And we, we know all the global issues. But look at the huge lead that was built up in semis over software. And this is the equal weighted S&P 500. So that's kind of the average stock you own to basically proportionate amount of every single stock in the index. And you see the ARC fund actually uh, is now well below uh, where it started this span and uh, clearly was the kind of the, the first in to the, bo to the boom and, and the first out non-profitable tech. And Internet looks very similar to that. And software getting more manageable in terms of its valuation and much more in line with how the broad market has performed. Mike Santoli, thank you. Um, meanwhile, news out of the Labor Department this morning, a proposal that could significantly shake up the gig economy. Shares of Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, we've been watching them all morning. They are cratering on this news. The proposal would make it easier to classify gig economy workers as employees instead of independent contractors. And this is a change that would really upend the entire business models of these companies, potentially requiring them to provide employee benefits, including minimum wage, overtime and more. This is not new, though. This is an issue that they have been fighting against for years now. We saw it right here in California. But now, given the macro cost-cutting environment, certainly would not be helping those profitability fears that have arisen, especially over the last few years. Uh, guys, we did hear from Lyft this morning. I just got a statement from Uber as well. The spokesperson, their head of federal affairs, C.R. Wooter, says that in a time of deep economic uncertainty, it is crucial that the Biden administration continues to hear from the more than 50 million people who have found an earning opportunity with companies like ours. We continue to look forward to a constructive dialogue with the administration and Secretary Walsh on this process as it progresses. Guys, this is really the fear here, the trade-off between flexibility and those benefits that we just outlined. It's not entirely clear to me, and I've been covering this for so many years, that the gig workers give up all of that flexibility to get those benefits. Of course, um, the gig economy side says that flexibility will be gone, but the other side that wants these benefits say that it is possible to have some of that. That's what it's, is at stake right now at a time when, you know, inflation fears are around. And Uber says that more drivers are coming to their platform for this kind of work. Yeah, you can't have it both ways, right, Carl? I mean, if, if you uh, are providing the benefits that mean that this is an employee and you can lock them in and determine how they have to work, then, you know, that, that's the, the benefit that the employer has. But it, it seems odd to me that these gig workers, particularly in Uber's case, seem to be returning to the workforce because economic times are tougher in a rate that's different from what we're seeing in just the general employee base. If you look at the labor force participation rate mm -hmm. in the last jobs report, you know, Uber seems to be getting more, uh, more drivers back than that would indicate. Also, DoorDash keeps saying, hey, the people who drive for us, they call them dashers, only work a few hours a week. So it's not as if this is the only thing that they can drive for, necessarily the only thing that they can do. But we'll see how the Labor Department uh, comes down on this. It'll have potentially a big yeah. impact. And Carl, uh, do you want to put this in person? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, I was going to ask you, actually, whether or not, I mean, how, uh, how ambitious were some of the hopes, at least, of trying to work out some compromise between classification and compensation? So, Carl, I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers back when we faced this in California, and the investor takeaway here, the concerns are very, very real. This could 
add up to enormous costs for these companies. And like I said, it could upend their entire business models. The way that it works, and not very profitably to begin with, is that these workers are classified as independent contractors, not employees. So a few years ago, when they were looking at this same battle in California, both companies actually threatened, Uber and Lyft, that is, threatened to leave the state altogether. They spent $100 million uh, collectively to fight this ballot proposal. So if you're an investor and you're looking at these companies and thinking, OK, they're just getting to some better unit economics, but now they may have this battle to fight, not on the state level, but the national level, that's going to make you nervous. So that's why you're seeing these share prices down so much, because this is going to last a long time. Uh, meanwhile, guys, we do want to get to um, some other companies. And amid the macro weakness, retailers, they are feeling the squeeze ahead of the holiday season. Big inventory gluts, as we've talked about, and fewer consumer dollars to clear them out. So Amazon trying to get a head start, kicking off their second Prime Day sale of the year. Joining us now with his outlook on the e-commerce landscape, Madrona Venture Group Managing Partner Matt McElwain. Uh, Matt, thanks for being with us today. Uh, it's an interesting moment for Amazon. What, how do you think that this holiday is going to go? That is the second Prime Day is it going to be successful considering that they've already had one not all that long ago, just a few months ago? Well, I, I think that they're going to have a successful Prime Day today and tomorrow. I was already on looking at electronics. And uh, I think that that's going to be a smart strategic move as well. You know, you're actually seeing a bunch of the physical world retailers get out their holiday promotions even earlier. And I think Amazon's trying to get out in front of that. And why is that? Well, if you're the average family and you have a median household income of around $70,000, 10% inflation in the last year, is that's $7,000 less that you have to spend. Even if you got some kind of a wage bump, let's call it $5,000 less, and you're just going to have to prioritize more. And in contrast, you've had all this uncertainty in supply chain, so you're likely to have gut, glut of inventory in a lot of these different companies. And I think we're going to see all kinds and forms of creative mm -hmm. discounting as we go into the holiday season. Right. And Matt, um, when we saw, I think it was last week, FedEx give its warning for the holiday season, um, you certainly saw Amazon shares slump in sympathy. But when you look at their hiring plans for the holiday season ahead, it's flat with last year, 150,000 workers. Do you think that Amazon is better positioned than, say, a FedEx or a UPS going into this holiday season? I, I think that Amazon is better positioned. I think there's two things going on there. One is the concerns around economic demand and consumer spending, and that's going to hurt both of them at some level this year. And again, why Amazon's trying to get out in front of this with their Prime Day. But the other thing is, is that Amazon has built, they have built more than a FedEx in the last 10 years from scratch. And so they have basically their own supply chain logistics system now. And so FedEx is losing market share as well as facing the headwind of the, you know, the consumer spending. And so I think that Amazon is ramping up to hire, and they're going to have a very impressive combination of you were talking about gig economy workers. You know, they've got these, you know, small businesses that are independent contractors that do last mile delivery for them. It's a different model than the pure gig economy, but it's a ecosystem that they've built over the last decade, which is really impressive. And I think is going to hurt FedEx. Yeah, Matt, let's talk more about inventory. Part of my concern heading into the holiday season. So, you know, you've got these sales that are at the beginning of Q4, this Prime Day, and, you know, Walmart, Target are doing their thing, too. Suppose a lot of that gets liquidated. How important is it how many inventory turns we have throughout Q4, what the profitability is, how much the retailers have to discount in order to move it, 
and therefore uh, how, what, what the profits are and how much they have to hire throughout the season. Because if people are working during the season, then they can spend, right? So, so how important is that whole dynamic? Well, I think that I think that the jobs are going to be there again. We're continuing to see, you know, impressive numbers on on low unemployment. I think the issue really is inflation. And back to that, you know, you know, median household income of seventy thousand. You know, if inflation's up ten percent across the board in the last twelve months. You know, you've effectively got seven thousand dollars less to spend, and you're going to have to prioritize. You're not going to be able to buy as much. So, what I think is going to happen this this uh, holiday season is that top lines are going to be okay because unit volumes are going to relatively hold up, but the deep discounting that's going to come in in a lot of creative forms towards the back end of the quarter is going to be what hurts bottom line. I think you heard that earlier, you had, uh, David on from Goldman, and they're worried about bottom line. They're worried about operating results, and I think that's right. Top line is going to be okay, but bottom line is going to be under a lot of pressure. Yeah, and Matt, how does that fit in with the way that Andy Jassy is running the company? There's a good article as well this morning out from uh, CNBC talking about sort of his approach to profitability um, versus his predecessor, Jeff Bezos. What do you think investors should expect, not just in this quarter, but in terms of that financial discipline that we're going to see from this still relatively new CEO? Well, I think, I think Andy takes a very long-term view but yet you've also seen him take steps this past year in his first full year of closing certain initiatives, whether that's the, uh, the Amazon Health Initiative or whether that's certain store initiatives that they've had. And so he is going to keep a high bar for long-term ROI. He's not going to close something down because it's not looking good in the short term. Uh, but I think that's what you'll see out of Andy. But he'll keep he and his team will keep making investments. There's so much to invest in. Think about that logistics build out over the last 10 years or the warehouse build out, which they got a little bit ahead of themselves. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to be more disciplined on that. Another whole area that not just Amazon, but all companies are really trying to wrestle it with is what do I need in terms of physical space in the world of hybrid work? And how can I reduce costs while maintaining creativity and productivity and impact? from my workforce in the case of Amazon that doesn't just work in those warehouses and those logistics situations, Mm -hmm. but works in the home office, you know, in places like AWS. Yeah. And interestingly, Amazon has taken a somewhat softer approach maybe than their other big tech peers with that return to office and making it mandatory. Matt McIlwain, thank you very much for being with us today. Moderna Partners. Thanks, Deidre. Uh, special day today. Our own Julia Borston is launching her book, When Women Lead, about the underestimated advantages of female leaders. Julia joins us here on set at the New York Stock Exchange. Congratulations, JB. Thank We're so you. happy for it's you. It's so exciting to be here with the book. <laughs> yes. I know how hard, how hard you've worked on this. You actually talked to, what, 120 women for yes. this book? Yes, I interviewed about 120 women. I knew going into it that I would find these inspiring stories. But what I found, the more and more people I interviewed is these common traits that have enabled these women in business, particularly in the tech space, to defy the odds. And I believe that these characteristics that women are more likely to show are actually really essential for all leaders, male and female, especially right now. Right. Go through some of them. You, you start with empathy, for one thing, right? Yes, women rank much higher in their ability 
to have empathy, to be able to put themselves in other people's shoes, obviously incredibly valuable, both for relating to customers and to employees. Women are more likely to lead with vulnerability. That's a key thing because it invites collaboration. Female-led companies are more likely to have an additional purpose, like a social or environmental purpose, in addition to profits. And female leaders are more likely to lead in a communal way, bringing in perspectives from across their organization rather than just making things top down. And those are just a couple of the examples. Right. You also look at sort of uh, industry verticals and where we find a lot of women leaders. Ecom, which we talk about a lot, why so concentrated in that area? Well, there are a couple of reasons why we found so many female leaders who have really disrupted the retail space. I mean, you have Katrina Lake. She founded St Stitch Fix, bringing personal styling to the masses, Rent the Runway, putting the closet up in the cloud, and then the real real, creating this idea of a circular economy. There are a couple of reasons why we might have more women in that sector, but I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that women saw problems that they wanted to fix for themselves. They wanted to shift the power dynamic away from the fashion industry and put power in the hands of consumers. But also there's this idea of critical mass. Once you start seeing a couple of success stories, then that success feeds on itself and it's a key uh, model for investors to say, hey, maybe we want to invest in someone who's the next Jen Hyman, the next Katrina Lake. They're not just looking mm -hmm. for the next Mark Zuckerberg because there's a little bit more of a pattern for success in that industry. Julia, you know as well as anyone, of course, that it begins at the earliest levels, right? The funding, the seed levels. And we spend so much time talking about that here on the ground in San Francisco. There's numerous conferences, lunches to figure out how you can get more of those dollars to flow to women entrepreneurs. But it still makes up, what, 2% of all venture funding? How do you fix that problem? What did you hear from the women who have succeeded and some of the challenges they faced in getting that funding at the earliest levels? I mean, what's so amazing is the numbers are so tiny, Deirdre. 2% of all venture capital dollars, 2% of the $330 billion that was invested in the U.S. and V.C. last year went to female founders. And one reason that's the case is because the vast majority of decision makers at the V.C. funds are male. And female, founder, female investors are twice as likely as male investors to invest in female-led companies. So a key um, element to this year is just diversifying the people people who are making the investments. And a lot of data has shown that VC funds that even increase their representation of female investors by a tiny bit, they see additional profitability in their exits. So additional diversity at the VC level translates to higher profits. Hey, Julia, congrats. Uh, what Thanks, about, John. What about when women rebound, uh, responding to setbacks? Was there anything you found about that? Because particularly in e-commerce, but in so many areas of tech right now, a lot of these young companies, the ones that are public, are weighed down. The ones that are private are going to have a harder time accessing capital. You find that women uh, leaders have responded to hardship differently. Well, there's so much data about how women are well-equipped to, to respond in crisis. I have a whole chapter in this book on managing in crisis. There's a lot of data about how female-led countries, governors, female governors of U.S. states outperformed their male counterparts. Female-led countries outperformed the male-led countries that were most uh, similar in terms of reducing death. Mm. So there's so many interesting uh, measures of the success of female leaders during the pandemic. And then if you look at companies, women tend to have a 
hire what they call adaptability quotient. That means the ability to make swift decisions based on data. Not to wait, to, but to read data and to be constantly collecting data, which is incredibly valuable. And John, the fact that women have had less access to capital, it means that they've traditionally had to do more with less. They've had to be scrappier, so they have those muscles, which will be very valuable right now to navigate these uncertain times. And perhaps less access to capital now. Finally, is, is the book aimed at, at female execs or male execs to figure out what they could do differently? I think this book is going to be inspiring for women, but this book is essential for anyone who wants to succeed in this business landscape because if you think about what it takes to defy those odds, those massive headwinds and get that tiny percent of venture capital funding, if you're going to be that exceptional, you will have lessons that are valuable for anyone. And I think the key thing is now is that these characteristics are not, these are table stakes. You have to be able to lead with these qualities to navigate uncertain times, to manage all these macroeconomic factors, and to be able to look around corners. And that is what these female leaders are really working to do. So inspiring, but also educational, a real roadmap for a new kind of leadership. It's fantastic. We're going to talk to Jen Hyman later this hour, but you're going to be on with Jen. Jen Tejada. Jen Tejada. Jen Tejada from PagerDuty. And then we're going to see you on Mad Money later on tonight, right, with Jim at 6 p.m. Congratulations, Julia. Thank you, We're so happy. women lead. You'll be hearing about it all day long. Meantime, uh, Meta launching new hardware today, but amid consumer fears and recession calls, is it even a good idea? We'll discuss that when Tech Check is just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number. And more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Meta Atlantic equities downgrading to neutral, cutting their price target to 160 bucks. Now, the main reason for that call, they say a slew of macro headwinds, including digital advertising. Uh, they're bracing for TikTok to keep chipping away at its market share and ad spending. Take a look at shares. They are down 3% to start this morning. And, John, that's not even to say anything about the metaverse yet. Well, let's get into it. Uh, The new high-end VR headset that Meta's been teasing all year finally set to launch today alongside a slate of updates on the metaverse. Let's take a closer look with CNBC contributor Joanna Stern of The Wall Street Journal. Joanna, this is a tough year, it seems to me, to launch a maybe $1,000 VR headset. You know, just when people are going back outside and the consumer is pinched. So what is success for Meta look like here, uh, assuming they don't have the next PS5 on their hands? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident it's not the next PS5, but high stakes, big, big stakes for today's event, because not only do they have to explain what they have been putting all this money into, but they do have to tell us what the market is for this new device. And as you mentioned, it's supposed to be a thousand plus dollars. 
Who is buying that? What does this do that's better than the current Quest 2 that's on store shelves right now for $400? And so, yeah, to me, the stakes are really about, one, they've got to prove what the investment of $10 billion last year has been going to and really upping the hardware, right? Seeing We need to see some substan- substantial improvements in the hardware. And then two, what is the market? Who is buying this? You know what this reminds me of is... Um you know, the pocket PC and all those smartphones and handheld devices that came out before the iPhone. Um, People spent a whole lot of money on that stuff, but the market wasn't ready yet. So $10 billion is so much money. In one year, $10 billion is a lot of money in five years, but in one year, what could that possibly have gone into that would be worth it? Is this trying to create a market before it exists, perhaps? Right. This is a future play. And so that's what we have to be seeing today. What do they think this is right now? What is the market for this right now? But as I've been thinking about this, I keep thinking about a turtle. Facebook or Meta here is betting on a slow turtle, right? And it happens to be wearing VR goggles, so it's even slower. But the growth <laughs> of this market and the, sp- and the pace, right, to keep this hardware moving, right, from the silicon, the batteries, the apps, it is all moving really slowly. So to build this metaverse, it even it may even take longer than that pocket PC, though, you know, that took a good decade. Joanna, I think about you as my metaverse pioneer or turtle. Maybe you're my metaverse turtle, to take your analogy. Um, You were one of the first ones to really spend some time in there and write about it. I've been enjoying more recent write ups like in The New York Times this past weekend. So my question to you is really practical. Do you ever go back? Do you go to a comedy show? Do you enjoy it? Okay, I was I, I had this in my lap just thinking maybe I would show it. So this is my headset. And do you see this dust here? It's it's quite dirty. Okay. Oh. I I don't often wear it. I really don't often wear it. And that is why it's dusty and it sits in the corner, half charged, not even charged, right? And that is also something they have to talk about today. Why are we gonna put this headset on all the time, right? Are we all going into the metaverse to dance around every day? No. Am I going there for comedy shows every day and every, you know, for my, for entertainment? No. So what is it? What is going to be that killer app? What does Meta think right mm-hmm. now, at least, is that killer app? Yeah, I'm curious what's better in the metaverse, because actually dancing around and going to a real life com- comedy show, that's pretty fun. So if that's better <laughs> in the metaverse, somebody let me know. Joanna, thank you. Joanna Stern. John, what about performing a stand up comedy show in the metaverse? I think that's better than being face to face in real life with your audience, but maybe that's just me. Anyways, Meta investors, we know that they have been feeling the pain this year. As we mentioned, the stock is off more than 60% off of its highs, and no one has lost more than you guessed it. More than you guessed it, Mark Zuckerberg. Robert Frank joins us with the breakdown. Robert, tiny violin for Zuck. Yeah, D, you know, if you look across the tech sector now, these losses are adding up. The top tech, tech billionaires, top 10, losing over half a trillion dollars in wealth this year. Elon Musk down 60 billion, Bezos down 55. But no one tops Mark Zuckerberg. He's down $75 billion so far this year. That is one of the largest wealth losses in history in dollar terms. He's down $90 billion from his peak last September. Now, to put that in perspective, he has lost the total value of a GM and a Ford in market cap combined. He used to be the number three in the world. Now he is off the top 20. Now, he was able to take money off the table before that big drop. 
Last year, he sold shares almost every single business day for a total of $4.5 billion in sales. His average sale price was about $327 a share. That stock trading today below $130. About $4 billion was sold by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. That's his philanthropy and LLC. About half billion were sold by his personal trust. Since 2012, Zuckerberg has sold over $17 billion worth of those shares. Now this year, he has not sold or purchased a single share, but D, he's also timed his real estate sales well, selling his San Francisco townhouse in July for a record $31 million. Guys. Uh, remarkable numbers, Robert, and we'll keep track of them with your help. That's our Robert Frank. Uh, meantime, uh, from one area of gaming to another, the world's biggest casino operators meeting in Las Vegas today as the Global Gaming Expo kicks off, talking about consumer demand, recession odds, and a lot more. Our Contessa Brewer is live and on the scene and joins us with that. Morning, Contessa. Hi there, Carl. Yeah, and, and by the way, several of these stocks are off like 7 8% right now. Win Las Vegas Sands, DraftKings. Meanwhile, the threat of recession looms. Gaming executives are worried about inflation and supply chain and labor. But this year's commercial gaming revenue is tracking 15% ahead of last year and the best August ever, according to American Gaming Association. I'm hearing lots of chatter, though, about that rumored deal between DraftKings and ESPN, which neither company would confirm. I asked FanDuel CEO Amy Howe whether she's negotiating with ESPN. The only thing I will say is we're the largest sports betting operator in the United States right now. So any deal of this magnitude, sure, we'd get a look at. What would be in it for an operator like FanDuel to partner with a media outlet like ESPN? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to speculate on how others may be thinking about it. What has worked very well for us is, you know, we've had a, a great portfolio of partners with NBC, CBS, and on the talent side, Pat McAfee and, and many others. And, and what we're looking for is to make sure we can attract and retain the best customers at the right unit economics, right? And at the end of the day, um, there's still a lot of uncertainty in this, uh, in this environment. We don't know exactly how many states are going to legalize when. And so we also want to make sure that we have the right level of flexibility to be able to come in and, in and out of channel, channels and optimize those based on how the environment is, uh, is unfolding. Amy Howe and DraftKings Jason Robbins join me for a panel discussion next hour, along with the leaders at Penn, Bally's, Wynn, and Circa. You can see that streaming live on CNBC.com shortly. And MGM's Bill Hornbuckle joins me for an exclusive tonight on Fast Money. You won't want to miss, miss that. In the meantime, a lot of speculation here about whether rising rates will cool the pace of M&A in the betting world. And one more piece of news this morning. Michael Rubin of the Fanatics just said he anticipates launching sports betting in every state where it's legal except for New York by football season next year. He's considered a formidable future challenger. Deirdre? Well, Contessa, we look forward to all of your coverage, quite the lineup. Thank you for that. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq is far off the lows of the morning, but still in the red by about half a percentage point. More on a new warning from billionaire Orlando Bravo after the break. Don't go away. We're back in two. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. 
Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Bertha Koontz. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. American Airlines shares have given up their gains after the company raised its revenue guidance for the quarter. American shares were up more than 6% but are now roughly unchanged on the day. American also said it is trimming its flight schedule. Other major airlines are trading down this morning as well. The International Monetary Fund has lowered its global economic forecast for next year. The group's chief economist says the worst is yet to come. The IMF now expects economic growth of 2.7 percent during 2023. And the Bank of England has intervened in the bond market once again in the face of heavy selling for the first time ever. It is buying inflation-indexed government bonds. Yields on British bonds are down from their earlier highs, but long-dated bonds are still up on the day. Back over to you, Deirdre. Bertha Coombs, thanks very much. Um, as we've been watching the markets, uh, shares are off their lows of the session. The Nasdaq's still down about a third of 1%. Growth continues its tough trade in 2022. And we've talked about how the market has shifted so rapidly underneath tech companies and investors. Here is Tomo Bravo's Orlando Bravo tweeting late yesterday. He said, tech companies built in the last decade were built in an environment where capital was free. Most of these companies have been structured in a way that they will always lose money and most will not be able to change. There will be a lot of or and software public companies in the near future. So does that give him some opportunity to buy some of these so-called orphaned public companies? Well, this morning, it would appear so. Tomo Bravo announcing it will acquire identity verification software company Forge Rock in an all-cash $2 billion deal. will take the company private just over a year after the company went public surging some 50% on the news. Key here, guys, all cash deal, uh, which is a lot of what we're seeing as the credit markets remain very tight, speaks to that opportunity. So many companies went public over the last few years. We heard a similar tone from Jeff Lewis in Tech Check yesterday, and he said, be careful. While these valuations are going to look attractive, you've just had so many, and there could be a narrative mirage. Some of them, he says, aren't going to make it, John, which seems to be what Orlando Bravo is implying also. Well, yes, yes. And he's also talking the classic private equity playbook here. I mean, because they're going to be buying distressed properties in the public market right now, right? And, And a big part of that is not just how good are you at renovations, but how cheap can you get it? And part of the challenge, Carl, is people don't like selling at the lows. So if the argument is, hey, this has been structured wrong from the beginning, we're experts at this, we can come in, fix your back office, get your sales organization humming, trim things down, and and get you in shape, then people might say, oh, well, okay. Well, then then we'll sell to you at the lows (laughs) for a good price and and come fix our problem. Yep. We'll see if uh, business models can adjust to a higher cost of capital and whether or not models that are now being built from scratch, uh, John, uh, are going to be any different than they have been in the past uh, years, as Bravo says. Still to come this morning, Roblox is uh, 75 percent off its highs, but some say it's headed even lower. We're going to discuss on this new initiation. We're back at a couple. Let's turn now to Roblox. Shares are lower by about a percent and a quarter this morning on the heels of a new note from Barclays. Initiating coverage with an underweight rating, $20 price target, which would be a ways down from here. Calling the stock overvalued, predicting post-COVID challenges to the platforms or the games user and bookings growth and increased competition for developers building the metaverse. Carl, a month ago, 
we were talking about Roblox, and I made the argument it has yet to prove that it is indeed a platform, that it can acquire other assets to scale, build the benefits of Roblox into those things, but it's priced as if it is. We'll see. Uh, that was a month ago, and um, you know the, the stock's having a volatile time, as many are in this environment. Yeah, price target at 20, uh, John, in case you didn't mention it. But, D, on a day full of either bearish initiations or downgrades yeah. of names uh, in, uh, in the Apple supply universe or anywhere else. Yeah, and I mean, I, I like this part of the note. They said, we consider it as the only true metaverse today, despite looming threats from Meta's Horizon Worlds and Manicore Games Core. So a little shout out there, but what does that say about the rest of the universe? A uh, metaverse? Metaverse. Can you have a metaverse? <laughs> Isn't that just a game if there are a whole bunch of metaverses? Is, what about Minecraft? Does that not count? What about, what about Epic Games and What about and the Fortnite? industrial metaverse, right? <laughs> a lot of CEOs believe in, believe in that oh. a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, guys, still ahead. It's launch day for When Women Lead, a deep dive on female leadership by our very own Julia Borston. She profiles PagerDuty's Jennifer Tejada, one of the few female leaders of a multi-billion dollar public company. You don't want to miss it. It's next. Speaking of cloud, Bernstein checking the forecast this morning, initiating Snowflake at neutral, 166 bucks price target there as they see a long and difficult road towards any additional market gains. We are back in just a moment. Stay with us. As we mentioned, our friend Julia Borston launching her book today, When Women Lead, about the underestimated advantages of female leaders. And one woman she profiles is actually a frequent guest on Tech Check. That's Jennifer Tejada, the CEO of PagerDuty. And Julia is here with us at Post 9 with more on that. Julia. Thanks so much, Carl. And that's right. We're joined now by Jen Tejada. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Julia. And congratulations on your book launch. Thank you. So, Jen, one reason I wanted to write about your story and talk about your leadership approach at PagerDuty is because you exemplify many of the crucial leadership traits of female leaders, including the fact that you have invested in diversity and you've really transformed the ranks of PagerDuty, both the executive ranks and the whole employee base to make it more diverse. Why was this a priority of yours? Well, I'm a firm believer that if we want to effectively build creative products for our users and solve important problems for them, we need to represent the diverse community we serve. We need to reflect that in our own developer community, in our own product management and leadership organizations. And so when I joined PagerDuty, we were roughly a quarter women, uh, much less so in the engineering community. And uh, and in leadership uh, over the last six years, while we've 10x the company from a performance perspective, we've also ensured that we're more than 40% women across the business. Our senior leadership team is over 45% female and our board is nearly gender balanced um, with more than two thirds of the board being people of color. And I think what that enables us to do is look at our incredibly diverse customer community and demonstrate to them the empathy and understanding the problems that they need us to solve. Yeah, it sounds like you're quite quoting directly from my book, Jenna. What's so interesting to me here is you've seen this overall um, progress as the company has become more diverse, but have you seen specific incidents or, or situations in which you know that the, the div diversity of pager duty, um, both in terms of race and also in terms of gender, is really helping you, whether it's connecting with customers or growing your client base? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I notice even when, you know, we're speaking to customers, I'm out on the road all the time now talking to customers. I was on Zoom for for the better part of the pandemic. But there is a sense of appreciation uh, from our customers when they see a woman in a leadership role. Uh, more broadly, it's enabled us to break down more traditional silos across the company. And uh, we're product-led growth companies. So it's incredibly important that our product teams, our development teams, our marketing organization, our go-to-market organization, and our leadership work really effectively together. And by having diverse leadership and uh, diverse individuals within those teams, I think our our ability to be creative, our ability to execute quickly, to adapt as the market changes has absolutely increased as we've improved the representation across the business and created a, a culture of belonging where people feel like their their ideas are not only um, needed, they're wanted and welcomed. Um, there are two specific strategic things I want to talk about that, that you do. First, as you mentioned, breaking down silos. I want to hear about how that's important, but also the way you put the challenges first when you're addressing things. You have a culture of collaboration, but you do that in such a way where you're always trying to tackle the tough things first. How have you deployed that in your leadership? Well, I'm an incredibly self-critical person, and I'm always trying to reflect inward curiously about uh, what I could be doing differently to improve my own leadership or my own performance as a company leader. And our weekly executive meetings are largely focused on the things that aren't going as well as we'd like them to be, areas for improvement, failures, being able to name a failure and talk about what we've learned from it so we can quickly pivot or adapt and improve. And that's been really important in growing the company from being a single product or tool for the DevOps community to being a multi-product platform that serves digital operations uh, you know, for more than 70% of the Fortune 100. So um, it's been a big part of our journey. And one of the reasons I think we've been successful in transforming the company over this period of time is that um, one, we set really high aspirations, uh, but two, we leverage every individual in the company uh, to bring forth their ideas. We're an incredibly transparent and open culture. Uh, we really focus on belonging and we treat uh, ID&E not just as something that's the right thing to do, but a strategic business imperative. We've funded it. We have metrics that we measure. We have time-based milestones, and that's really helped us to be successful. Yeah, I mean, you've been working on these projects for so long since you took over as CEO, but looking at the stock price over the past year, your stock is at a new 52-week low. What is your message to investors about what's going on with the company right now and what your strategy is to ride out these storms? Well, we continue to go from strength to strength. We have an incredibly loyal customer base and a product that is really well suited for an environment where our customers are looking for ways to save money, to improve the productivity of their developer community, and to become more efficient. And that's what PagerDuty was designed to do, especially in distributed working environments like we have today with hybrid work. Um, we've been playing the long game. We've continued to post great results, seven quarters above 30% growth. And, uh, you know, we're going to continue to focus on building out this operations cloud that serves not only the current challenges of companies amidst digital transformation, but their future challenges. Jen, planning for the long term. Thank you so much for joining us. You can read much more about Jen's story and also her strategy in my book, When Women Lead, which is out now. Julia, thank you for that, our Julia Borston. Meantime, Adobe may be 60% off the 52-week highs. The Kathy Woods buying some. We'll discuss that as we've got session highs. S&P back to 36.24. 
let's get a gut check on Adobe. Kathy Wood buying the dip again, snapping up more than 20,000 shares of Adobe for her ARC's next generation internet ETF. The purchase worth around $6.8 million. Second time the fund is buying Adobe since the stock took a tumble for its acquisition of Figma announced last month. Shares down 23% since that announcement, down 50% for the year. D, um, I mean, it's just kind of like a, a value play in a way. I, I don't know if you got to be particularly innovation risky to buy mm-hmm. Adobe here. Um, Kathy Wood and her team, they choose industry leaders. So clearly they believe that Adobe will remain one. However, there are questions about that on Wall Street. I mean, there's so much chatter, especially here in San Francisco, about Canva um, as a contender, still a private company. Um, But some say, Carl, that that's the reason, the competitive threat of a company like Canva is the reason that they had to do that recent large acquisition of Figma. Yeah, uh, Canva's definitely been making waves uh, for years, actually, uh, uh, with some pretty positive press. By the way, uh, Dee, we're also watching some of uh, Kathy's purchases and names like Rocket Lab as well. Uh, but lately, Tesla and Adobe have been some big ones. Yep, they have, and, and not particularly well-performing ones. Uh, meanwhile, guys, KLA, one of the biggest laggards on the NASDAQ this morning. Find out why after the break. We're back in just a moment. One more thing. Starting tomorrow, U.S. chip toolmaker KLA will stop offering certain supplies and services to China-based customers, according to Reuters. That's to follow Biden administration rules. Companies aiming to supply Chinese chip makers with equipment must obtain a license from the Department of Commerce. Chinese sales make up about 30 percent of KLA's total revenue. The company's also reportedly going to cease supplying Chinese plants mm-hmm. owned by Intel and South Korea's SK Hynix D. Yeah, certainly not the last we're going to hear of this. Those export restrictions going to hit some other chip makers as well. Meantime, guys, we started the show talking about the gig economy stocks. Take a look at them. Now they are back from session lows. However, Lyft and DoorDash hitting fresh all-time lows. Lyft at 11.76. Remember, it went public at about $72 a share. Of course, it's that overhang as investors try to digest what that Department of Labor proposal means for their workforces. Um, perhaps deciding that maybe the impact isn't going to be as immediate or as large. Uh, RBC's take on it says much ado about largely nothing. They think the bigger picture in long term, the probability of it coming to pass is low. And some others note, guys, this is probably focused on other sectors like construction and trucking, Carl. Yeah, interesting to see Uber say that the rule takes a measured approach, taking you basically back to the Obama era. Meantime, guys, uh, we are at session highs or close to it. We bounced right off of 35.68 as we had uh, the dollar soften a bit, uh, the two-year 4.27 after rising above 4.3 earlier this morning. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. From a flat tire in the city... To a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 